Hello and welcome to this special Halloween edition of the National Trust podcast. I'm James Grasby, curator for the Midlands, and in this episode we'll be uncovering Tudor folklore and secrets at Little Morton Hall, and a mystery that lay hidden in plain sight for centuries. Many people always say Halloween is very much the time where the veil between the worlds is thin. I'm Dee Dee Cheney, I'm an author and I run the Twitter hashtag Folklore Thursday. Halloween has a very long history. Many people believe that it's actually based in the Celtic festival of Samhain, which was celebrated at the same time of year. It welcomed the dark half of the year, the end of the time of plenty. Historically, the festival is All Hallows Tide. The first part of that is Halloween or All Saints' Eve, time for appeasing the dead and remembering loved ones who've passed over. The next day is November the 1st, and that's All Saints' Day, a day for venerating the saints. The last day is the 2nd of November, and this is All Souls' Day, And this is all about purgatory. The idea that the living will help those in purgatory by giving alms and prayers for the dead. Halloween for the Tudors was a festival that marked an opportunity to pray for the souls of the departed. The tradition of mumming is often called soul caking. Mummers would knock at doors. They would sing these songs and give these prayers to the dead. The inhabitants would give them soul cakes. Many people believe that today's custom of trick or treating is actually based in this custom of soul caking. They would ring bells to comfort the souls of those trapped in purgatory and light huge bonfires to ward off evil spirits with protective charms. It's outside visiting hours now and the sky is darkening. I've come to Little Morton Hall to find out more about how Tudors protected themselves from real and supernatural terrors. And I'm about to meet Heather, who I've never seen before, but I'm assured when I do come across her, she will be instantly recognisable. Just past the trees. What an extraordinary building. A timber frame building three storeys high, gently sinking into the ground. It's the most wobbly and wonky affair. Each corner decorated with carving. There's a moat. There's a moat. Look at that. My goodness. An apparition of a Tudor lady approaching me. (laughs) She's real. Heather. Good morning. Is it you? <laughs> what a wonderful outfit you're wearing. Yes, because I've got a costume that belongs to one of the ladies of the house. So I'm dressed as a lady would have been in the very late 16th century. Heather, I'm on a quest to find out more about Tudor home security. What an extraordinary courtyard. What a complex piece of architecture, very irregular in plan. Window, bays coming forward, acres of glass and tiny little diamond planes reflecting light. And an inscription, God is all in all things. Is that right? It is, yes. And this, in the year of our Lord, MDL1X, what's that? Well, it's 1559. How important was God? Central. Central. 
But the difficulty was they believed in God, but they also believed in the devil. So we've got physical protection in the gatehouse and the moat and spiritual protection in the, in the Lord. Yes. Very interesting doors opening to left and right. This is the Great Hall. And to begin with, everything happened here. Above here we have a dragon. Why is he here? Possibly because he was protecting the place. Heather, where are you taking me? We're going up through another door. We're going up to the long gallery. Wow! Very wonky, isn't it? Sort of Alice in Wonderland, a curious perspective. I suppose it's, what, 30 metres long? Easily. Let's walk the whole length of this long gallery right together. This room was added because it was a status symbol and it was used for people to come up and literally they would be able to walk up and down, it would be used for dancing. They played tennis in this place. Did they? Yep. And we're just getting to the other end now. That was quite a walk. It's a long yes, gallery, for sure. Is. Either end, we've got these two plaster panels which are in opposition to one another. What are they saying? It's depicting, at one end, the Wheel of Fortune. And, of course, the Wheel of Fortune was very much something that medieval people believed in, that you could be up at the top of the wheel sometimes, and then life could throw you a wobbler and you would be down at the bottom. I mean, that's superstition. It, it realized, is. It, it is. Now we're going to go to the brave new world, aren't oh, we? Oh, we are. These two things are in opposition at either end. Yeah, and it's saying <laughs> where we've been and where, where we going. want to go. We've got a, a plaster relief with a figure and an inscription. Tell me what I'm looking at. She's looking at geometry. She's got um, a, a compass in her hands. It's about knowledge of sciences. It's about the idea that Protestantism is about learning and progressing and leaving the old ideas behind, the superstitious ideas behind. Most people had to go down the road to Astbury Church, but the Mortons had their own chapel and that's where we're going to go next. And this is the chapel. Ooh, into a magical dark room. Everybody from the ploughman upwards would seek to go to Mass every day in pre-Reformation times. The main religion in this country was Roman Catholicism. Henry wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon and marry Anne Boleyn. It meant that this country separated from Rome, which was in charge of the whole of Christendom, and meant that a new church was founded, which we know now as the Church of England. Henry wanted the church reformed to make it less superstitious. The country relied on lots of superstitious practices. Some things were not seen as mystical, they were seen as just everyday. Doctors would cast your horoscope to diagnose what was wrong with you. Elizabeth I had Dr John Dee, who would do just that. She kept a piece of what was supposed to be unicorn horn in silver about her person because this tale was that a unicorn horn dipped in whatever would reveal if it was poisonous. So all of these things which we regard as superstitious and magical were just general currency. 
for all levels of the population. Now, Heather has told me in order to find out about the biggest secrets at Little Morden Hall, to come and find Barbara Jackson, who I think is through here. Barbara, hello. Welcome to the Great Chamber in the South Range. You know all about Little Morton Hall's biggest secrets, I gather. I do. A <laughs> secret that's slowly really revealing itself. I'm Barbara Jackson. I'm a room guide, a volunteer, and I've been working here for nearly 20 years. So while you've been walking around with Heather, have you noticed anything that's well, I... slightly unexplained? <laughs> we found quite a few things we didn't understand with our powerful torches. Things that hadn't been seen before. Things that hadn't been seen before, sure. things that you can't see without a torch, such as this one over here. Can't see it? No. Now you can. Wow. A series of concentric rings. And it's five centimetres across, maybe six, six or seven, six rings. Six circles on that one. And like, the distance between them is quite even as well. And completely invisible until you put that raking light across Absolutely. it. Absolutely. We've got several other areas with circles like that. One of them is a daisy wheel design. What's that about? Circles are a line design. People believed that evil spirits would follow a line. So it was a circle or a never-ending line, they would become trapped. The clue we have here, we have three spiral stairs with the door to the outside. Mm. So it's a void behind the wall. Whoever's in the room doesn't know what's happening on the other side. They do know that there's a door to the outside. Each one of these sets of staircases is protected by a set of concentric rings. There is one other design that we found. We found them everywhere. So I can show you our best example of that, because that happens to be in this room as well. Does it? So this is, an, again, another structural timber. Mm -hmm. There's nothing there. There's nothing no, there. there you shine your... Ooh. <laughs> That's interesting. There are a series of... Um, it's sort of a lattice, a, a crisscross pattern, isn't it? It's a series of crosses sort of tessellated together. That design was made without lifting the tool, so it's a continuous line design. Oh, really? Which means it's one of those that's a line design that's attractive to evil and the evil becomes trapped within the design. There are some things behind you. And as I look round, there are more at this sort of level there and they're everywhere. The easiest way you can recognise them is by feeling them, because they are Am I burnt. Allowed to do that? Yes. They are burnt into the timber. Yes, they are. Beautifully smooth yeah. and jet black. In fact, when we first looked at this one, we ended up with black fingers. <laughs> that, so that's been, that charcoal's there ever since wow. they were put on. How do you think they got there? It looks to me like a candle burnt. I'd assumed that somebody had put a taper or a candle. Mm too close and it were just caught, but and that's just, too simplistic an explanation. You'll notice that those are fairly symmetrical, which is, you know, a pair to either side, they're which similar. is a bit curious if they're accidents. What we used to say was that these were accidental candle burns that had been done by careless Tudor people. <laughs> One night I was reading Current Archaeology and there was a very recognisable photograph of a burn, absolutely typical of the one you're looking at now. And that said, 
that two gentlemen, Nick Hill and John Dean, had done some experimental archaeology and proved that these were deliberate. I'm Nick Hill, an architectural historian and archaeologist. What we found really was that to make a typical burn mark was really needed concentrated effort. Typically for a burn mark that's two to three mil deep on most buildings all around the country, you need to hold a steady flame really quite carefully in contact with the timber for about 10 minutes to get that charring pattern. In 2015, we bought powerful torches and did a search of the building. Up to now, we've found 250 plus of these bones. And then the question is, well, how did they get there? What are they for? Burn marks occur very widely on buildings um, from round about the late 16th century. Despite the fact that our forebears seem to have spent a large amount of time on this, we've never found any actual documentary or written or record evidence at all to say uh, what they were doing and why. We believe they were made by the residents rather than a wise, cunning person, a white witch type person in the community that would come in and do it. There have been a number of different theories. Is it to ward off evil spirits? Is it to uh, protect buildings from fire? What we found is that largely they are around windows and doors and fireplaces, so where evil could get in. For example, they believe that witches could shape change. So if you had a blackbird down the chimney, it could easily be a witch. Certainly there was a heightened fear of such things in the 17th century, witch trials and witch burning and so on. We see it in things like Shakespeare's play Macbeth, the three witches stirring the cauldron, but uh, it isn't particularly necessarily directly to do with fear of witchcraft or the devil. We're beginning to think that the root of it is maybe in Christian church belief, but it then develops and becomes a multifunctional sort of thing that's used in many different ways. Candles were blessed in the 16th century, blessed in church and then brought home once a year at candle mass. And those candles could be lit at any time of the year in the home to protect the home from illness or storms. But after the Reformation, all that sort of thing was banned and all the other supports of the saints and prayers were gradually stopped. Is this something they could do for themselves to protect themselves? Now they couldn't turn to the church as easily as they could have done. Once you actually start looking at burn marks specifically, rather than ignoring them because you think they're meaningless and accidental, that just hundreds and in fact thousands and thousands of them have now been recorded. They're in houses uh, great and small. The other National Trust House, there's been work done recently recording them, Knoll House in Kent, cathedrals, agricultural buildings and mills, Nelson's ship, the HMS Victory, Stuart Elizabethan furniture, Right across the whole of Europe, they made it across the Atlantic to the United States. Most surprisingly of all, they've been found in Australia, particularly on stables buildings. Maybe it's not actually about making a mark, which is what we see the evidence of. It's actually all about the ritual that went accompanied this, that some prayers, some recitation, some other performance, some act was being done, maybe a public act, maybe a private act. I think it's wonderful, really, to have a few mysteries left. So not accidental. You've got more than 250 mm -hmm. in this house. I mean, that in the Elizabethan period was a bit like having a security camera and a bolt on your door. 
against... Possibly. So we've got 300, 400 years of protection here. And on the other side of the room, the up-to-date security <laughs> that was probably updated at the rewire last year. Which is a modern surveillance camera. Barbara, having done all this work, what do you think it was in the Tudor person's mind that drove them towards folklore and superstition? I would um, challenge your presumption that it was the Tudor people. I mean, do you walk under a ladder? Do you personally throw <laughs> salt over your shoulder? Do you put shoes on the table? We still do it. There's nothing special about the Tudors <laughs> protecting themselves. You're quite right. Um, my family have a tradition that my grandmother picked some lilac and brought it into the house. And that day, my mother as a child was knocked down by a bus. Not seriously injured, but that just reinforced my grandfather's belief that you should not have lavender in the house. And I don't. I've come back to uh, meet Heather. What a mysterious feel it has in low light. Heather, are you there? Hello, James. It feels like such an ancient house. It is an ancient house and it's become, it must have been a witness to so many people and so many lives and stories. I'm sure that ghosts have been part of the history of this place. They have indeed. We always say it is a very positive house, but there are stories certainly of a grey lady who walks up and down this very gallery, a crying child in the chapel, and a lady who walked across from the fields with a lantern on one November night and through the courtyard into the Great Hall and then disappeared. Folklore in general is so rooted in our own societies it's there in the fairy stories we tell, the folk tales we know. It's a guide to life. It teaches us what the norms of our society are. Coming together to listen to a tale that most people know is a very bonding experience. And the same goes for our traditions and customs. Like Halloween, so many Families still celebrate this festival with dressing up, with parties, with gathering together and performing traditions with roots that have been completely forgotten. But they still do this every year. Folklore is very much about that. It's about a shared experience and shared symbols that mean that we belong. Halloween may not have the hold over us it once did, but many of us love what it means, the nostalgia, the tradition of it, dressing up, fun and games with friends and family, a cosy, festive sense of coming together before the harshness of winter and embracing the folkloric side of our heritage. If you'd like to explore more of Britain's bizarre side, you can find Dee Dee Cheney's book, A Treasury of British Folklore, at shop.nationaltrust.org.uk. Next week, we'll be in Cardingmill Valley in Shropshire, where blind walker Julian Jackson 
will be teaching us how to see landscapes through our feet. To get the latest episode of this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to the National Trust podcasts on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out about all the podcast series produced by the National Trust, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. So until next time, from me, James Crasby, goodbye.